0: is hair a material our biscuits a material our crystals a material is plastic a material Is porridge a material can gases be a material our eggs a material is water a material what do you call everything that isn't a material <laughs> <laughs> sorry i didn't mean to laugh at your question and yet you continue to do so <laughs> hello and welcome back to handmade the making podcast with real talk about materials I'm your host, Anna Pozhaisky, and in this episode, I talked to dendrochronologist Valerie Truet about wood. In other words, Valerie is an expert in tree rings. Actually, she's a professor of tree ring research at the University of Arizona. So it's her job to use the rings in trees to study all sorts of things from the climate of the past to human history and the history of forests. I first heard of Valerie when I received an email earlier in lockdown um, asking whether I'd be willing to tweet about a new book about tree rings. Not going to lie, guys, um, it feels pretty great to be such a materials influencer these days. <laughs> um, I had a when I received the PDF, I had a little scroll through um, just so that I could like say something sensible. Um, but a few pages in I was completely hooked by the amazing stories about this science that I had no idea about before so I was super excited when Valerie agreed to come on the podcast and I can't wait to share our chat with you here as I just mentioned Valerie lives in Arizona so we had to record this over the internet which is why the sound quality isn't quite as high as the in-person recordings but it's still pretty good I realise as well that um, I probably should have said last episode that that episode, um, Brass with Andy Taylor, was recorded pre-lockdown. Um, so coming up, there's going to be quite a few of these online lockdown interviews. But the benefit of that has been that I've been able to talk to amazing material heads from all around the world. And Valerie is one of those experts. So anyway, let's get into it. I started by asking Valerie how she got into tree rings.
1: So, in my case, I was studying to be an environmental engineer in Belgium. I'm from Belgium originally, and I was looking for a project for my master's thesis, and one of the projects that was available was to do dendrochronology, tree research in Tanzania. And I had never heard of tree research or dendrochronology before. But I did really badly. Wanted to go to Tanzania, so I jumped on that project. Um, and me and one of my fellow students, uh, we went to Tanzania to collect samples from trees to study their rings and tree uh, their rings. And really, it was when after we brought those samples back to Belgium, and I started looking at the wood um, that we had brought back at the samples under a microscope that's when I really got hooked. Um, that's, I really love the process of doing the lab work, uh, involved where you get to look at wood and wood under a microscope. It's really beautiful. It's very intricate and detailed, yet very functional. Um, and at the same time, the process of, of doing dendrochronology of, of, the main process of what we do is called cross dating. It's it's pattern matching. You you match the patterns between the rings that you see in different trees and different samples, and and that pa- that process it's it's like solving a pr- puzzle. So between the beauty of the wood and and the process of, of puzzle solving, I really got hooked on dendrochronology, and so I. After finishing my master's, I went on to do a PhD, a postdoc, and now I'm a
0: professor and I've never really done anything else. Brilliant. Um, and you've recently written a book about your career in dendrochronology. What's the story of the book?
1: Yeah, so I, um, I wrote a book, it's called Tree Story. It's a broad audience book about dendrochronology and all the stories that tree rings can tell us. And really the idea of writing this broad audience book is that many people that I meet are familiar with the concept of tree rings. You know, most people, at least in in temperate regions, um, have learned as kids that you can count the rings uh, in a stem of a tree and that that will give you an idea of how old that tree Mm -hmm. was. Um, But few people know all of the exciting science that we – all of the information that we can extract from that familiar concept. So all of the information about climate and about archaeology and art history um, and ecology – um all of the stories that have been told using tree rings and that's really i think there's i you know i get very excited about my field of research and i wanted to share that with a broader audience
0: so all of those factors that you just spoke about then the the history of the the climate data and human history how how do they all come together in tree rings
1: yeah so i'll i'll um so my field of expertise is to use the rings in trees to study the climate of the past, and I'll quickly explain how that works based on trees growing in Arizona, where I live. So in Arizona, it's a it's a you know it's a dry climate. Um, it's it's mostly deserts, but at higher elevation, there's also forests, but it's very dry, and so the trees um, they like it. They are happy when it's a wet year. They like it when they have more water than usual. And uh, when they're happy and they like it, they grow a lot and they grow a wide ring in that year. Uh, On the other hand, if it's a very dry year, they're not going to grow a lot because they don't have a lot of water and they're going to grow a very narrow ring. And so if you have, let's say, a 500-year-old tree that grew in Arizona, Every, it has 500 rings, one ring every year, and every, by measuring the width of those rings, you can tell for each year whether it was a dry year, uh, resulting in a narrow ring, or a wet year, uh, resulting in a wide ring. So you can extract information about which ones were the dry years and which ones were the wet years in Arizona based on um, the rings in trees. Now, we're we're not limited to living trees alone. We can really work with anything that's made out of wood as long as it has enough rings in it because the rings don't go away just because the tree died. They they stay in the wood. If you look at a piece of wood, you will see the rings in it. So that information we can also see on... um, on anything that's made out of wood that can be dead trees but it can also be archaeological wood or even musical instruments or, or paintings made out of wood um, and so by measuring the width the ring width in that let's say archaeological wood we can also date that wood so we can match the archaeological the pattern, the treeing pattern and the archaeological wood to, to the pattern that we see in living trees and, and that way use dendrochronology as a dating tool.
0: And does that have to be location specific so the rings will match up with the local climate.
1: Yeah. So, so for within the same within an area with the same climate, all the trees or most trees I'm generalizing here <laughs> yep. will will have narrow rings in the same years and wide rings in the same year. So, let's say the whole of Arizona has uh, the tree rings have similar patterns. Now, as the climate changes, you will also get. Uh, different tree ring patterns. Um, So, for instance, you cannot compare the tree ring pattern in Arizona with one in the UK, for Mm -hmm. instance.
0: And how far back can you date pieces of wood using this technique?
1: It depends a little bit, but the oldest, the longest continuous tree ring chronology, so a chronology, a time series for which we have a ring for each and every year, is 12,650 years long, and that's for German uh, oak and and pines. Mm. Um, So that's a combination of living trees, dead trees, uh, wood from historical buildings, archaeological wood, and then all this material from, let's say, 12,000 years ago. um, That includes subfossil wood so wood that was found in peat bogs and in, in uh, lakes and in river sediments.
0: Ah, okay so it's been preserved for that amount it's been of time. Yeah. yeah exactly yeah
1: so it's not like it's not a 12,000 year old tree most of our trees are 200, 300 years old but they've been preserved for 12,000 years in uh, peat bogs for instance where no the no oxygen could reach the wood. And so it has been preserved over
0: time. Mm, amazing. I have to say the field of dendrochronology is a new one to me, but the material of wood itself will be familiar to all of us. You know, it's all around us. We love to build furniture mm-hmm. and, and home, home appliances with it. Um, sure. But so we're talking about wood today and it strikes me that the structure of wood is critically important to your work. Um, I wonder if you could, tell us a bit about how, why tree rings exist and how do they form?
1: Yes. Um, So I mentioned earlier that most people that I talk to who live in temperate regions are familiar with the rings in trees and that they can count them to estimate the age of a tree. And that is because a tree forms a ring every year. One year, one ring per year. Um, and the reason for that is is the seasonality and the climate. Really, uh, trees grow in summer when it's warm and there's a lot of light. And then in winter, they stop growing. Uh, deciduous trees, uh, um, they lose their leaves and they don't grow. So. Um, what you see when you look at a tree ring is um, in, in spring when a tree starts growing, it's growing fast and, and, it, and it's uh, growing light colored wood that we call early wood. Um, and the main function of the early wood is to transport a lot of water from the roots to the leaves so, so the tree can grow well in spring now towards late summer and fall the tree slows down in its growth and the wood becomes uh, the wood that's formed in in late summer and fall the late wood is darker in color and it's denser so at that point in time the tree is no longer that concerned with transporting as much water but the wood is its main function is is structurally is, is to provide support to the tree Um, So you have light-colored early wood, uh, darker-colored late wood, and then the tree stops growing altogether in winter. When the days get cold and dark, the trees don't grow at all. So no wood formation in winter. Um, And then the next spring of the next year, it starts forming light-colored early wood again. And so really the, the boundary between two rings that you see is the boundary between the dark coloured late wood of one year and then the light coloured early wood of the next year. And so that's how you, that's why you can see um, one ring every year because the trees stop growing in winter.
0: Mm-hmm. Ah, so a tree ring can't tell you about the climate of the winter time; it can only tell you about the climate of the summertime when it's growing. Is that right? Does that make sense?
1: Generally speaking, yes. But there's some areas, um, for instance, in the, in the Mediterranean mm-hmm. um, or in California, where the trees, like in Arizona, they like it when it's wet and they don't like it when it's dry. Mm-hmm. But in California, there's no – like all of the water falls in winter. It doesn't. There's no precipitation in summer because it's a Mediterranean climate. Mm-hmm. So trees grow in summer – but they reflect how much rain or snow they got in winter. So ah, okay.
0: some
1: those cases, you can say something over the winter climate. But you're right that the vast majority of treeing based uh, climate studies are, are mainly for summer climate.
0: Mm, okay, that makes sense. So let's imagine that you are presented with an archaeological specimen of wood. What process would you go through to find out information from that piece of wood
1: yeah so I think one thing I haven't mentioned yet is that it's important that both for archaeology but also for living trees is that we don't cut down trees or we don't cut we don't have to like you know cut down an archaeological Mm. site we have a hollow core that's about um, five millimeters five mil in diameter that we can core into the tree and then extract a sample from it. Um, So it doesn't harm a living tree at all.
0: Oh, that's good to hear.
1: (laughs) Yeah. He hardly notices it Um, from an archeological side, It leaves a little mark, obviously, but the amount of information that we extract from it is, is, is uh, a lot. Mm. So, um, from an archaeological site, you either do that, you go and uh, with your core, extract a sample from a beam, let's say, something that stayed above ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, or um, a lot in the Southwest, in the American Southwest, a lot of the archaeological material that um, is being used for treeing dating is charcoal. Um, because it is better preserved over time, typically, than than normal, than regular wood. Mm-hmm. In Europe, a lot of the older archaeological material is, from, for instance, from water wells, where, again, the wood has been preserved underground, uh, underwater, under anaerobic um, circumstances, mm-hmm. so that... The- has been preserved longer, so you would go and extract a sample, bring the sample back to the lab, and then sand it uh, to see the ring structure properly. It needs to be very finely sanded so that you can look at it under a microscope. Um, and then there's two ways of doing it, um, of doing the cross dating process. So. One way is is one method I used uh, when I was working in the Sierra Nevada in California. It's a visual cross dating method, where a dendrochronologist who has been working in a certain area for a while will know by heart which ones are the wide and the narrow rings for that area. So, for instance, where I was working in the Sierra Nevada. I knew that 1796 was a very narrow ring in almost all of the trees that I looked at. Mm -hmm. And so when you get a new piece of wood, you, I would go and look for the most narrow ring and see whether that could be 1796. So kind of match the pattern that I see of wide and narrow rings in the wood match that to the pattern that I know in my head, because I've worked in that region for so long. Um, another way of doing it is is more time consuming but it then provides you with a statistical or a more quantitative way is to measure all of the rings so we have a, a measuring device so we don't measure them but with a ruler by hand mm-hmm. you know you measure on a table that's connected to a computer so you can measure all of the rings that use the width of all of the rings that you see in your piece of wood and then match that sequence of wide and narrow rings it's a bit like a barcode really it's wide wide narrow wide wide narrow wide narrow 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 wide something like that mm-hmm. you- match that to the sequence of rings that you have stored from your reference library, let's say of, of samples that you have from that region to see where in time is the pat- best match uh, for your treeing pattern. And so once there you found the best match um, that that then gives you a date of when that tree um, was cut that you found in that archaeological site.
0: Um, I'm going to change tact a little bit now and ask you something a little bit more general. We've talked about a lot of specific things about the field of, gen- of dendrochronology, but what, in your eyes, is the magical thing about wood?
1: Well, there's there's so much there's so much about top yeah what I what I mentioned earlier is that it is so intricately Bill, when you look at it through a microscope, like especially in the in the broadleaf trees and the in the deciduous trees, every every type of tree, every tree species, can be identified by its um, by looking at its wood alone, by looking at its wood anatomy. They all have something slightly different from the other trees and there's so much detail there's there's so much the pits and the patterns of the program and and, um there's so much detail but then it's all put together and it's beautiful it's absolutely beautiful what you can see through a microscope um but it's not only beautiful it's also functional right every piece of that wood is not random it is put there with Will put there. It's not put there, but it, it has a very uh, important function, and and I think that combination of of beauty and function is what really draws me to wood. Um, that being said, like obviously as a dendrochronologist, the amount of information and stories that we can extract out of that resource is baffling and then to think that it's not just information about the past that we can extract but the importance of wood as we move forward in a in a warming world and in a you know in a, in a world with more carbon emissions the importance of use of storing of being able to store that carbon in wood mm-hmm. um, it's just, it has it all. Wood has it all.
0: <laughs> Would you be able to share one or two of your favourite anecdotes from the book you said about the stories that Wood can tell? I'd love to hear a couple.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I think one of my favourite stories is the one that's um, not my own research. It's, it's from colleagues of mine um, where they... Uh, some colleagues in the Pacific Northwest, um, so in in um, Oregon and Washington, they found what they call ghost forests. So these are forests of standing dead trees, and they found four four sites like that. They so these were trees that died a while ago. They didn't know exactly when, but the, the, tr- the trees were the trunks of the trees were still standing. Mm-hmm. And so they sampled these trunks, used tree dating, dendrochronology to date when those trees died. And they found out that all of the four ghost forests died in the exact same year and spending in the winter between 1699 and 1700. Huh. They also saw that they died very suddenly. Um, so it's not like the trees were growing very slowly and then kind of petered out. The trees were perfectly healthy until the moment that they died. Um, and so the, what happened in that winter between 1699 and 1700 is that, <clears throat> excuse me, a big earthquake happened the Pacific Northwest, um, that these are trees, that uh, forests that were growing close to the um, coast and in in relatively low uh, positions. And so when this uh, earthquake happened, these lowlands sank even further. There was a subduction. And so the trees came underwater. The forests uh, came underwater and the trees died because they can't, they're Their roots and stems were under too much water. Mm. So by using the tree ring dating, uh, the researchers in the Pacific Northwest um, dated when this giant earthquake happened uh, in Oregon and Washington. Now, at the same time, um, there were researchers in Japan um, who were historians, uh, environmental historians who studied the environmental history of of Japan, and they one of the things they discovered, not based on tree rings at all, based on historical documents, is that in Japan, a big tsunami happened on January 26th of the year 1700. Um, There was loads of historical evidence. Documents indicating that there was shipwrecks all over Japan or all over the Pacific coast of Japan, mm. agricultural lands that were flooded. Um, so, so a lot of historical evidence of a big tsunami that covered like 600 miles, so more than a 1,000 kilometers of, of um, Japanese coastline. Um, But they called it, these Japanese historians called it the orphan tsunami because um, there was a lot of evidence of a tsunami, but no evidence of an earthquake that could have caused that tsunami. And so it wasn't until the Japanese historians started talking to the American dendrochronologists that they figured out that the tsunami historical documents and the um, earthquake tree rings were telling the same story, basically, that the orphan earthquake, the, sorry, the parent earthquake of that orphan tsunami was actually all the way on the other side of the Pacific Ocean uh, in Oregon and Washington. And to me, that's really a, a, a good example of how interdisciplinary uh, our, our science is and, and also the kind of puzzles that we can solve with this, I guess.
0: Mm, Amazing. Um, I read also in in the introduction to your book, you talk about um, a certain violin as well.
1: Right, right. So um, that is um, the Messiah, a a violin built by Stradivari um, that is now housed in the um, Ashmolean in in Oxford, Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. now, the Shmuelian houses this violin. It's um, one of the most um, valued musical instruments in existence. Um, but at some point in the 90s, there was some debate about whether violin, uh, in the violin in the museum in Oxford was the actual messiah built by Stradivari. Was it the real instrument? Or was it a copy that had been made later, and that was, you know, made very uh, craftfully, by a, but but a copy, not by the hand of Stradivari. Mm. Um, one way of figuring out whether this musical instrument could be made by Stradivari himself is through dendrochronology. So Stradivari was uh, said to have built. Uh, the Messiah in um, 1716. Um, but so if you if we were to date the tree rings in, this, in the Messiah, and saw that the tree that the violin was built out of uh, died before 1716, then it's possible that Stradivari built this violin. On the other hand, if the tree rings date that the tree was still alive at the point that Stradivari died. He died in 1737. Um, If the tree that the violin was built of was still alive at that point in time, then there's no way that Stradivari could have built it. Mm -hmm. So um, at first, uh, tree ring dating didn't really solve the issue. Um, it's, It's not straightforward to tree ring date you know, the most valuable musical instrument on because <laughs> obviously you can't go and take a core out of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so they, they have to, you know, come up with, with ways of, of measuring the rings uh, regardless. And at first there were two different groups who tried to date it and came up with two different dates. One that supported uh, Stradivari as the builder of a violin, the other one that dated the piece of wood to after Stradivari's death, and so supported that it was a copy. Uh, but eventually, uh, not too long ago, uh, Peter Rapp, clever UK uh, dendrochronologist who specializes in musical instruments, um, dated the series from uh, The Messiah, from that specific violin uh, um to um, another violin also built by Stradivari that was very well documented. So the other violin, uh, they know for sure that it was of Stradivari's hand. And when he compared the Messiah tree series to the tree series in that other violin, they matched so well that they must have come from the same tree. So that kind of um, suggests that both violins were of Stradivari's hand.
0: Mm, and all thanks to tree rings. So that's an amazing range of kind of topics that dendrochronology can supply into, information to you know ancient musical instruments and ancient tsunamis.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's why I mean, and and it's really the you know I I mentioned I'm I'm a professor in the laboratory of tree ring research. There's about 12 professors, so we're a department on our own, and there's about 12 professors in our department. Some of, some of my colleagues are archaeologists. Others are, uh, one of them is a dendrochemist. Uh, I'm a climatologist. Uh, some of us are forest uh, forestry, uh, are specialized in forestry. Some others are hydrologists. So it's really a very interdisciplinary field of science which makes it
0: uh very exciting Mm. and it must be so enjoyable to be surrounded by such different um such a range of different specialities as well i bet your lunchtime conversations are very interesting
1: (laughs) yes well not so much at the moment because we're all at home but (laughs) well true
0: (laughs) (laughs) so are there any questions still to be answered in dendrochronology like what are the next steps for the field
1: well, I think uh, I mean I, I um, writing this book Tree Story is as uh, giving me inspiration for um, more questions to be answered. Um, I think one, a couple of big ones are uh, one what I mentioned earlier that trees do not only tell us about the past uh, but can also help us in the future, and because. Wood um, is is a natural way of storing carbon. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's an important role for dendrochronology to play there to quantify how much carbon is stored in wood every year in different types of trees, under different climate, in forests versus um, single trees and so forth. So I think there's an important role for tree ring research to... um, uh, help in in quantifying uh, the role of trees in the future. Um, secondly, the tropics, right? So I mentioned that most of the um, tree ring chronologies in the International Tree Ring Database are in the Northern Hemisphere, some in the Southern Hemisphere, but there's very few chronologies, relatively speaking, in the tropics. Uh, There's a number of reasons for this. The the main reason being that I mentioned when to form an annual tree ring, you need seasonality, both in the climate and in day length. So you need periods with more light and less light. You need warmer and colder periods. Now, in the tropics, that's not always the case. There are some areas where it it gets wetter and drier, but there's a lot of areas where the temperature is pretty much the same year round. Day length is pretty much the same year round so there are much fewer trees that form tree rings in the tropical regions, they exist um, but there's much fewer of them and and there's a lot of potential still there to see um, what we can do with the tree rings that exist or if we can apply other uh, techniques um, to look at, at tree growth in the tropics I think a third thing that I've that i really it's only through through writing this book that i realized the potential there is in petrified wood the rings in petrified wood so so petrified wood is is very old it's millions of years old it's not really wood anymore it's it's rock mm. um, but it takes place over a process that takes millions of years where the the organic material in wood is 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 slowly being replaced by silicate. But the amazing thing is that even through that process and a lot of these um, samples of petrified wood, you can still still see the ring structure um, and you can still see tree rings and you can still count the rings and even prostate the rings. But of course we can't, I mean, this is wood that is millions of years old. Our, our longest tree in chronology is just over you know, 12,000 years mm. old. So there's no way of matching it, but there's still quite a lot of information that you can extract from that petrified wood. And I think that's exciting to see if there's more there that we can do.
0: Mm, very cool. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to mention?
1: No, I'm 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 uh, I'm very, really, very honored and, and happy to be on this podcast. I, I teach a class at the University of Arizona, Introduction to Dendrochronology, which typically attracts students from archaeology and and um, geosciences and geography. Um, but in the past couple of years, we've also had students from um, material sciences and. Mm-hmm. Um, taking this class. And, and I, I think it's awesome that they're taking this class and they're interested in wood, not just as a material, but also as a way of studying uh, other things. So I think there's there's a lot of... Um, I, I mentioned that endocrinology is an interdisciplinary field, and I think also with a discipline of, of material science, um, there's, there's interesting collaborations uh, in our future.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's funny because... Um, I studied material science as an undergraduate and, you know, very formal kind of curriculum. And there really wasn't anything about wood at all in our studies, which is weird. I mean, I wonder whether... it maybe in engineering or structural engineering, there might be a bit about wood, but it was really, you know, a material that was wasn't even given a mention, which is strange yeah. considering that it's such an important material for pretty much all societies throughout history and also around the world. It's it's very odd.
1: Yeah, that's what those students say as well, and I, I agree because I, it's. I mean, it's unique as well because it's the only you know living uh, material um so so i think it's it's really important um so yeah i think i think there's there's more there's there's room for growth there
0: Mm, for sure i mean from a material science perspective it's quite a complicated material you know the structures that um that that the molecules have to make to make up a piece of wood are incredibly complicated much more so compared to a piece of steel for example although that can be quite complicated too (laughs) Um, But I suppose, I don't know, material scientists, I guess we kind of view any kind of biological materials as being very messy and confusing because, you know, wood is not a homogenous material. It's got grain and it's got personality and it's got knots that mess everything up. Um, So I guess for us, it's just it's a bit intimidating to think of it as to think of it as a material um, from a material science perspective. Right, because there are so many exceptions to the rules. I guess <laughs> exactly, it doesn't fit in with our graphs and our uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. formulae. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, fantastic! Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, it's been fantastic to hear about dendrochronology and all of the things that wood can teach us, um, which I really had no idea about. So. If people have enjoyed hearing from you, I suppose the obvious thing is to go ahead and get a copy of the book and hear more of the amazing dendrochronology stories.
1: Yeah, I have a website that's um, uh, specifically for the book. It's it's just www.valerietrouet.com, T-R-O-U-E-T. Uh, you'll find information of the book about the book and and reviews of it um, and so forth. Um, I have a, a website for my lab as well. If you go to the Laboratory of Treeing Research in at the University of Arizona, you'll find uh, information about the lab in general and about my my research as well. Um, and then I am on Twitter and.
0: Instagram as Episperic E-P-I-S-P-H-E-R-I-C. Brilliant. Um, Well, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great to talk to you.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Anna. This was a true pleasure.
0: So that was my interview with the marvellous Valerie Chouet. Thanks so much to her for coming on the podcast and telling me all about the stories that I'd read about in her book. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would be really awesome if you could rate and review wherever it is possible to rate and review podcasts or tweet about us. We're at realtalk, that's R-I-A-L talk for material talk. And um, you can also email us if you've got any questions or comments um, or feedback on the podcast. We're at realtalkpodcast at gmail.com. A couple of thank yous before we finish. Thanks to Dave Shepard for his marvellous cover art on the podcast. And thanks to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. Next time, I'll be talking to historian Lucy Jane Santos about radium. So until then, thanks for listening. And I'll look forward to sharing this podcast space with you next episode. Bye for now. Small details are big surfaces.